Welcome to My Two Cents with Keith Beggs from Steadfast Wealth Strategies. In this podcast, we show high-level executives and business owners why comprehensive financial planning and executive bonus structures don't have to be too good to be true. Keith draws on his experience in realistic financial planning, and expert guests share his two cents about academically-based financial planning that you have to hear to believe. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Keith Beggs here, the founder and CEO of the Steadfast Wealth Strategies and the host of the My Two Cents podcast. Uh, today, I have a special guest with us, Anthony Tolliver uh, of the NBA and the 76ers, uh, here to talk about uh, the business side of the league and then being an entrepreneur and, and what that entails, uh, all the opportunities that are thrown your way, and then how do you make those decisions. So, Anthony, thank you for jumping on with us. I really appreciate you being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. So real quick, Anthony, I have your 14-year NBA vet now, started in 2007. Is that correct? Yeah, so 14 years playing pro, technically, I guess, 12 and some change in the NBA. I played in the D-League as well, and I played in Germany and Turkey. I've been all over the world and played in the minor leagues and everything else. So yeah, but it's been been a great journey. Yeah, I think I saw it, it was like 11 or 12 teams across yeah, the 11, NBA. 11 teams, man. It's uh, pretty crazy. Yeah, so you've got to see a lot of the world and a lot of the cities and kind of interact in a lot of different environments. It's got to be pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen it all a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so graduated from Creighton and got a degree in finance, family, uh, married, four kids. I know your youngest is a little over two because I think when we met, I had a daughter and they were playing together and their birthdays within a couple of days. My daughter's birthday's in May. So that's your young. No, that's not your youngest. That's, is that, that's was that youngest, your youngest? Yeah. Okay, that's your youngest, and you have three older kids as well. So large family, been married for a number of years, and, and that's just awesome. It was, it was great to get to meet you out there and learn about you. So I want to dive into the business side of the league a little bit here. So you spent eight years on the executive committee for the NBA Players Association. I think you started as the vice president in around 2013, and then you moved into the secretarial role. So how is that process? How do you get elected to the executive board? Do you uh, campaign for that? What is that process like? Well, I mean, I think it kind of starts with you just showing interest, right? As a young player, it was something that was always interesting to me, the business side of of the game, of the NBA. And so I would show up to meetings. You know, that's a huge part of it. It's just being active, it's being present at the meetings and everything else. It's not that hard, though. I mean, they put you up in nice hotels and, and pay <laughs> for your flights and your food. And it's like, you know, paid vacation type situations, especially as a young guy. You want to pay for me to come there and eat and have fun in Vegas? Yeah, I'll come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So going to meetings wasn't a, a big deal for me, but, but actually showing up to the meetings was a, another level. And then the second level, third level would be engaging. All right. So when questions were asked or things were brought up, I'd give my opinion. Right. And whether it be something that people agreed with or not, you know, I was just very I've always been, you know, outspoken and not shy. You know, I think that over time there was enough of those ideas and, and situations that came up that uh, people said, hey, all right, cool. Like you seem like you'd be a really good fit. And so that's when I got voted in as one of the vice presidents. I think the it's like maybe five or five or so, maybe six vice presidents. And so I was one of those. Actually, me and Steph Curry, we wanted to do it together. And I was kind of mad because I kind of convinced him to do it. And then we both ran at the same time and I lost and he won. I was kind of mad. But then the next time around, I I ended up getting on board. So it worked out good. It just basically starts with just engagement and just being a little bit outspoken. 
so the, I know there's a there's like Michelle Roberts, right? She heads up the NBA Players Association from a I guess attorney or lawyer side. Then there's a player side of it as well, right? That's where I think Chris Paul was the president when you were doing it. When I was, and and there's five or six vice presidents. So what are the defined roles there? What is her role versus y'all's role, and how does that kind of commingle? So you know, currently she she acts as the executive director of the MBPA. She's She's the boss um, of the MBPA, of the office of, you know, she's the main person and you go to the office, but we're still technically her boss, I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. She works for um, you. She, yeah. She reports to us. We're, we're the board, essentially. The players are the board and she, you know, she'll make suggestions and she'll have recommendations and stuff like that. But ultimately the main stuff now, the day-to-day stuff, you know, we don't deal with because everybody's busy. Um, that's what she's there for. But as far as the big decisions and how to approach different things and stuff like that, the executive director is really the head of the snake. And so she's been awesome for us for, I don't even know, maybe six, seven years or something like that. She's been around for a while now. And we're in the process of, of hiring a new executive director. She's ready to retire. Yeah. Yeah. We've actually been interviewing people for even, uh, pre COVID we were, we had started the process. And then COVID happened and then craziness happened. And then we said, well, <laughs> let's pause, right? So we paused for a whole year and then we kind of picked back up on some of the uh, interviews and stuff. So yeah, I mean, we're still going through the process now. We're, we're kind of getting towards the finalists and we're hoping to to have that, that next generation executive director in here, hopefully in the next two, three, four months. So when you guys negotiate with the league, is there is that an annual negotiation or do you guys typically like you sign like they call it a CBA right or collective bargaining agreement right and how early on does do you and the executive board and Michelle Roberts executive director how early on do you guys start preparing for that let's say you have a five year CBA how early on are you guys preparing for the next one is it almost immediately after is it one or two years after what's that process like yeah it's constant honestly after the after we sign a new one maybe a year maybe two is kind of like very little, but it's really after you sign it, the next couple of years is de- defining some of the nuances that you kind of say, we'll skip that down the road, right? Certain gotcha. things, you, the big stuff you get done, right? And the then, money. <laughs> yes. The, the big stuff you get done, you agree to, but then you always have maybe five to 10 issues that are like, Hey, we will address those later. Well, over the next probably two to three years after you sign, you're still negotiating a lot of those nuances, right? Depending on the CBA, you might have an opt-out in five years or seven years. Well, let's just say you might have a year or two in in between where it's not not as busy on the CBA. But then, hey, you might be analyzing it for the year up into the opt-out as, hey, do we want to opt-out? Or do do we think they're going to opt-out? What so it's not something that they sit back and you sign a seven year contract and you don't have to do anything for six and a half years. No, it's pretty constant. And plus, every single year, there's new rules, there's new nuances that have to be discussed and negotiated. Um, the whole pandemic situation happened and we went into the bubble. I mean, that was a whole like CBA type of negotiation itself. You know, and right. that it was, was like a separate over. one-year CBA. Yeah, yeah. Because it was just this was not a part of the plan. So we have <laughs> to put together all these nuances and basically create. I mean, we almost had to create a new league because it was the everything that had to do with the bubble was its own thing, right? Like, and so we, all right. the details had to be figured out 
in like 60 days. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, who so could visit, how long they could visit I mean, for, was, all that kind of stuff. It was insane. I was just like, my goodness, I'm so glad that I'm not the executive director happened to do this. I mean, we had, we were on phone calls two, three, four times a week, but these guys were on 30 phone calls a day, right? Trying to get stuff figured out. So it was a really cool experience, but it's not something I would ever want to do again. Yeah. So what was the most surprising thing you learned about the, you know, in the whole process? Was it just in, in negotiations for just being on the executive committee for a player's association? What, I mean, what was the, the thing that was like, wow, I didn't realize that were, you know, they just caught you by surprise the most. I would say the amount of work it takes just to get things done, like behind the scenes. Now, of course, you have all the things that being a basketball player, you know how much how much work it puts. I've been doing it my whole life. So I know exactly how much time it work, how much time it takes. But behind the scenes, like all the things that go into this game into the NBA, people just have no idea, you know, how much time and effort it takes to to keep all this stuff moving. And people will get a chance to see the in the finished product, but they don't have any idea the work that that goes on behind the scenes on the business side. They most people don't understand how much work it, it is on the physical <laughs> side too, but the business side is it's a monster. It is a monster. That's cool. All right, man. So let's kind of tr- let's transition from the league to your personal business model. So you got in the league in I think 07, 08, I think more maybe 2010. I know you were on, on Golden State. I looked at, by the way, do you know this? What was your highest point total in a game? I looked this up just a while 34. ago. 34. Yeah. Who was it against? Minnesota. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, I was looking that up earlier. So you get in the league, you get one, you know, one of those first contracts. And, and now you've got some money and you're wanting to invest. And I'm sure people are starting to come at you and they've got restaurants, they've got bars, they've got this gadget or this gizmo. And, and you know, if, and if they just need some capital and, and they'd be off and running and you guys can make all kinds of money. So all those things, start, how, how quickly does, first of all, does that start happening? And what were you prepared for it? One blessing in disguise for me was that I didn't get drafted. I feel like people who get drafted, your name is up there, your people talk about it, you get all these, all this attention, even though you might not have any money, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> if you're a first round pick, yes, you get guaranteed money. But if you're a second round pick, there's nothing that's guaranteed. And I was projected to maybe be a late second round pick. It wasn't high, highly touted prospect. So for me, I really wanted to be drafted. That's what I really wanted, but it didn't happen. So I think it worked out really well for me because it wasn't like people automatically thought I had a bunch of money. So it wasn't, people weren't really coming to me with crazy stuff from the beginning. I was making about 2000 bucks every two weeks in the D league for a year, you know, or for five, six months, I was on par with a decent paying job for, you know, regular. So people were regular looking at college. Yeah. You're big time. Like you got all this millions of dollars. Right. So I was able to kind of like, walk into it instead of just like just get thrown into the fire eventually people found out especially in the nba which is still think it's ridiculous that you can just literally look up my salary like that's (laughs) like you can google my salary like i can't google your salary like why in the heck can you google mine that's bullcrap you know that is funny that you mentioned that that you could do that but yeah, that all of it has to be public record. And is that a league choice? I still don't know. I, I don't think I've ever gotten a, a straight answer of why that is the case. But it, it's very, very, to me, it would be very easy to just to say, hey, look, you know, Anthony Tolliver signed with the Golden State Warriors. Terms are undisclosed. 
that's how it should stay. Yeah. Like, why why is it disclosed? Why do why does the general public need to know what I signed for? That means it doesn't affect the game. It doesn't affect the watching, like the experience. What it does affect is people knowing too much information. Then they think they're smarter than the GMs or anybody else. Why would you pay him five million dollars or ten million dollars? <laughs> That's what it turns into more than <laughs> yeah. anything else. Yeah, I think it's league engagement at this point. I don't know if you can get that. Is it the cat back in the box or whatever? Right, cat in the bag. I mean, no, it's, out, it's then... not happening. Like it, that, it's too much of a part of the experience as a fan now seeing it free agency signing. Oh, he signed mm-hmm. for one hundred ninety-seven million dollars. Like it's too yeah. big of a like a public. I don't know. Like people love it. People love yeah. knowing. And so, I think a lot of that has to do now with the salary cap, right? Cause you're taking a percentage of a cap. If it was uncapped, I think it would be easier maybe to go to the other direction, but yeah, but um, you, but look in baseball, they, they don't have a cap. Yeah. But guess what? It's oh yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. All the, Alex Rodriguez signs for you know 10 years, $300 million. <laughs> like, yeah, it's still the same is- crap. <laughs> So, okay, so you start getting some things brought to you, or maybe you have some ideas of your own. Um, did you build a process to make these decisions? Did you build a team around you? Was it your wife? Or how did you kind of start working through opportunities? Because, you, ha- you know, like I said, you're a finance major. I'm sure you enjoy getting into some of the business things and you want to broaden out. So you want to get involved with it, but you want to be probably pretty prudent on how you're doing that. And so what was that? What was those initial first couple of decisions were investments like for you? You know, honestly, at the beginning, it was more just me, right? Like it was something I it was interested in. Don't do anything crazy at the beginning, as far as writing huge checks. It was more so, you know, doing some small seed seeds into some smaller startups and stuff like that. Just stuff that I was interested in, and wasn't doing it necessarily for the money, but it was more so for experience and yeah. And now, were you learning. finding those? Were you finding those or were they finding yeah, I you? I mean, they were just organically coming my way. Yeah. I wasn't okay. like out seeking anything, but it was just yeah. kind of happened. Real estate's always been my foundation. So that's real estate. There's always risk to it, but it was not like, it's not the same as cutting a check into. So right. one of the first things I did was buy a house. I just bought an investment property. Now I did overpay for it a little bit <laughs> looking back <laughs> because I didn't have a process and I didn't really know what I was doing. But to me, it was more so, all right, I got to take, I got to take that step. I got to go do it just to learn. And so it's been, I still own that house today, actually. So I, I made my money back now, but anyways, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of how I started. And then, you know, over time I've, you know, built a team and I don't have any full-time employees that work for me, but it's more so my advisors and family office company that, that I work with and stuff like that. Now that I'm kind of transitioning out of basketball, like I said, maybe, maybe one more year, maybe this year, but after this year, it's, I'm like literally cutting the cord and it'll be officially over. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so to me, that is, that's kind of where I'm at, just making that transition and trying to see about building on my own personal team. I already have a a personal assistant that I plan on bringing on and everything else. She's in Spain right now, studying abroad. I'm like, hurry up and come back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what type of industries did you find yourself more leaning to or getting involved? I think you said real estate. Are you pretty heavily in real estate versus other endeavors? Where are you? Do you try to get a broad mix, or do you find something like real estate and really want to run with it because that's your passion and you feel like you know it best? Yeah, I don't want to say I get bored, but I kind of get bored, right? Of just real estate. Um, yeah. I love real estate. I love what it does. I, know, I love that it's solid. It's consistent. 
It produces cash flow, all the things. There's a lot of different things that can, as far as tax advantages of real estate, all that stuff, which is great. There's just not much like it, but I love niches, right? So I love, for example, I was a co-founder of a company. We started a, a kids fishing, kids fishing company. We started creating kids fishing poles and nets and different stuff like that because no one was focusing on kids. And so we literally walked into the market, didn't have a clue what the heck we were doing. <laughs> but we literally just said, hey, we're three young dads that we want to see more um, focus on kids and getting them outdoors and fishing. So we decided to do it. it. Took us a few years, but once we figured it out, we became the leaders in kids fishing. And we outsell anybody in kids fishing and tackle, which has also allowed us to create adult lines and stuff like that. So that uh, co-founded a company called Big Blanket, which we literally make the largest blankets in the world. And that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you guys are on my Facebook quite often uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> for Christmas. So just stuff like that, man. One of the very first investments I ever made was Active Faith, which is a Christian athletic apparel company. And once again, a niche to really focus in on people with that, that identify with their faith, create high quality clothing for them. That's kind of where I've been able to find great opportunities is in the niche, in the niches. You know, one of my buddies says the riches is in the riches is in the niches and finding niches that you can go dominate and become the player, not a player, but the player in that niche. That's where you can really, really make money. What do you think of a mistake? I mean, I'll say players, but it could be anyone in general when they start evaluating deals or if they're looking at getting into the entrepreneurial investment world, not not so much the stock market, right? We're talking investments outside the market, right? What is something that you're concerned with that you make sure that you don't do that you think some people do that, that causes trouble? I think that, I mean, due diligence is everything, man. You know, I, and don't get me wrong, I've definitely pulled the trigger on some investments without. I would say the proper due diligence. I also can make a lot more mistakes than your average person. <laughs> right? right. And so for me, it's a little bit different. Like sometimes I just, I do pull the trigger on things before doing, I would say like the extensive amount of due diligence that it should take. Or if it's like a smaller amount of money, I'd put as much time into it. It's more so the feeling that I get, or do I really think that the people who are behind it are good? And yeah, so let's uh, let's stay on there. How much of it do you think is the idea versus the people? Which one, do, like that you're working with or partnering with? Which one do you think? Do you weigh those differently? And which one do you put more weight on? Do, do you trust the person more, the, or the idea more? Way more on the person. Way. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking like I don't. I've never really put a percentage on it. Yeah. Maybe seventy percent. Maybe eighty. I think that there's a lot of good ideas in the world. A lot. And if you have, if you invest in the right people, even if they fail at one thing or the next thing or the next thing, if it's the right person, they're going to find a way to win. And so that's where, like I said, there are sometimes, sometimes I'll make a decision and invest in something. And it's the idea in the business is way less important than the person. And that having that person, having me be a part of that person's journey I'm looking at it from a long-term standpoint and saying, this idea might not work, but this guy is just, he's smart enough and just crazy enough to be the next Elon Musk. 
right? Right. Or be the next, you know, Jeff Bezos. Because to me, identifying that talent and identifying those people, like I said, even if I do lose maybe in an investment or two with that person, guess what? They're going to think about me every time that they come up with something or come up with an idea. And, and if that's, that person's the right person, they're going to do something that's massively significant. And yeah. that's where you're going to, all you need is one of those. You don't need to win at that level more than once. Like right. You, okay, I lost 50,000. Okay, I lost 100,000. Okay, I lost $250,000. But then I put in $50,000 into his fourth endeavor and it did, a, you know, a thousand X. <laughs> yeah, right. And, yeah, you know? and, if you, and if you feel like you found the right person, then you want to stay close to them. And then on the flip side of that is if you're involved and you find out that they're not the right person, you want to, you usually want to part ways pretty quickly. And just even, you know, even though you're taking a loss, probably better long-term to go ahead and cut that core early because there's a lot of things that could that end up becoming out of that. Here's the deal. I've lost money. You know, I've lost yeah. money. Uh, it's a part of the game. Like it's a part of it. Like it's, the people who can't stand losing money, I know that's one of the things. What is it? Is it Warren Buffett? He's like, don't ever lose money. Number rule number one is don't lose money. No, rule number two is refer to rule number one or something like that. I think yeah. it's Warren Buffett that says that or somebody. I'm like, all right, well, you can't be, you can't really be active out here, and especially in the spaces that I like to explore. Real estate, I have lost money. It's a lot less likely and a lot less. Right. It's a lot more rare in real estate. But I have lost money in real estate. But when you talk about venture startups and stuff like that, like most of the time, you're probably going to lose your money. It's just a matter of identifying and getting the ones that give you 80, 100, 200 X just once or twice. And all of a sudden, everything that you've uh, ever invested in is paid for plus Right. I mean, that, so. and that's the difference in in money, investing money that you need, and being you know, and having additional capital. Right. You don't take your the money that you need to live on and go put it in endeavors like that. I think you put you know, the, but then once you have, if you live a prudent lifestyle or a lifestyle that you can afford, and then you have additional money, and that's when you can go take those home run swings. And like you said, you don't got to hit many of them. Right. You know, you you, you hit a couple of them, and, and you're doing really well. So let me ask you this: Is there one deal that you didn't do that you still think about? That you're like, man, where do, where do you let them go pretty quickly? If you say uh, no, I guess you follow deals that you don't do to see how they turn out. I, I would say the the only one that I, I can think of, see, here's the deal is <laughs> I, I'm a serial investor. So I'm not saying I invest in everything, but everything I've ever like really, really wanted to be a part of. I got a part of it. Yeah. I got, yeah. I got in, right? Like it, <laughs> it might I'm, be different levels, but we're in. Right, right. And even like there's a deal right now that I'm literally in the middle of syndicating a, a small little fund to invest in it. And it's because the minimum to get in was 500000 And I didn't want to cut a $500,000 check. So I said, well, I know people and yeah. I can organize a syndicate. So I asked the guy, hey, would you mind if I got other people involved and brought, you know, maybe three to seven people in and, and brought, he's like, yeah, sure. All right, cool. And so you, now I, in two weeks, raised about one and a half million dollars almost. It's, I didn't want to write a $500,000 check, but I was like, well, I want to be in for like a hundred, maybe 150, but not 500. So yeah. like I said, I've, I've just, 
I've always tried to figure out ways to get involved with things I really, really want to be involved in, even if it takes some creativity and a little extra work. Outside of that, I mean, I can't think of anything that I was like, man, I had a chance to be in that and I didn't. And now there's just not a lot of those types of things. I wish I would have held on to my Lyft stock a little bit longer. I, I got in <laughs> free IPO on Lyft and it didn't do well at the beginning. And I just pulled it out like way, probably way earlier than I should have, but I just wanted to liquidate it and get, you know, get, get that money in something else. And then probably two, three months later, it popped up and I was like, dang it. So stuff yeah. like that happens. Right. But as far as any businesses that I had a chance to invest in that I didn't, I don't, I can't really think of any. Let me ask you one last question and we'll get out of here. Do, do players talk to each other about investment deals or does everyone pretty much do everything on their own? Is it like, is there a locker room conversation at all? Or is it everyone just kind of keeps it themselves with that type of thing? You know, I think the the tide is shifting. When I first got in the league, business conversations was never a part of any locker room talk. Over the past decade, though, in I think, you know, I don't want to say like I'm one of the reasons why this is happening, but like guys like myself, it, it's starting to become it's starting to become a lot more normal, right? To have a conversation about business, about investments, about things that are outside of the game of basketball, outside of basketball, girls, music, like the normal <laughs> locker room talk, right? Outside of that, I mean, business is starting to become a, a pretty normal discussion. And and uh, so, yeah, guys do, and it's not everybody, it's probably a small percentage, but it's still, yeah, there are some, a little bit, of, there are a few people who are still, hey, I'm on the phone. Oh, it's my baby. So yeah, so there are still some people who definitely that are talking more about it and being more about it. Hi, baby. Well, cool. Well, I think that's a, I told you that was the last question and she showed up. So I think it's a good place to end. Anthony, I want to appreciate your time, man. I know you guys are busy. You got a lot going on. And so thank you for jumping on here. I think this is very educational for myself and hopefully our listeners will get a lot out of it as well. So uh, it's been great to get to know you over the last 10 months. I started, I think we met, uh, it was January. So I guess nine, yeah, something eight, like nine months ago. Uh, yep. I met just quickly. I met Anthony and his family at a, a kids all inclusive in in Cancun. Our kids were playing together, and we just kind of started chatting uh, and hit it off there. It's been great to get to to do this with you. Thanks a bunch. Again, my name is Keith Beggs. I'm the founder and CEO of Steadfast Plus Strategies and the host of the My Two Cents podcast. If we can do anything for you, please give me a call 832-506-9034. Thank you. Thank you for listening to My Two Cents with Keith Beggs. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. All securities discussed are offered and provided through Steadfast Financial Planning, LLC. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Steadfast Wealth Strategies. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor and or qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.